covering 47 and 48 today. Next week we'll be completing our study in the book of Genesis. And then the week after that, the 20th, we will be starting the book of Matthew, which is fitting because Matthew leads right into the Christmas story. So on the Sunday before Christmas, the 20th, and then on Christmas Eve, we will be having a service here as well and uh, joining together in the name of the Lord. Uh, And it's uh, been a traditional thing that we have a Christmas Eve service, a time of worship, and then a time of uh, just looking at God's word as we uh, gather together as as families and just celebrate the birth of our Lord. So uh, put that on your calendar for December 24th, and I forget the time, it's either 5.30 or 6, I'll clarify that for you, but earlier in the evening so you have time to come and, and worship and then get back home and have a family dinner. So Genesis chapter 47, this morning as we continue working our way through this amazing book of Genesis, we're going to read down to verse 12 as we get into the study today. Genesis chapter 47, verse 1. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob. And set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And went out from before Pharaoh, and Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word, and we trust that you are ministering to us, that you are speaking to us even now, and that as we walk through this study, we trust that you have something for each one of us this morning as we look upon you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just to uh, back up a bit, last week in our story, as we came to the end of chapter 46, when Joseph's uh, brothers and family had come and settled in uh, to the place where Joseph was assigning them, Joseph gave them a little coaching advice and said, look, fellows, we're going to have to go up here before Pharaoh, 
And when we go, you need to know a few things. First of all, the Egyptians despise shepherds. They think you're just the off-scouring of the earth. And so uh, when you go in, don't tell them about the sheep. Just say you're, you're the shepherds of livestock, and it will be well with you. And Pharaoh will say, what is your occupation? You need to say these things to him in this way because he, he wants to hear about you, but he also may react adversely if uh, he hears that you're shepherds of sheep. And he has, he, J- Jacob's not, excuse me, Joseph's not telling them all this, but Pharaoh himself has herds of cattle. And so uh, Joseph knows all these things. He's been administrating the land all these years for probably going on um, nine plus years now. He's been administrating these things. And so he's giving them some coaching. And then as Joseph is preparing to take his family before Pharaoh, there's something we need to understand. You see, Joseph was second in command. And maybe we've gotten a little used to in the story as we focused on Joseph that he basically could just do whatever he wanted. And to some extent that was true, but he still answered to Pharaoh. And so he needed to take his family before Pharaoh, have them meet him, and then he needed to make a formal request. Now, as Joseph understood the lay of the land, literally, uh, and that the fact that he wanted his family to be separate from the Egyptian culture... <clears throat> Joseph had sort of purposed in his heart that he wanted them to be out in the land of Goshen. For it was fertile, it was plenteous, there was, there was much land for the people to settle. And as they certainly grew over the years, there would be room to expand. But the way it was situated on the other side of the Nile, but just northeast of where, sort of the northeast part of the kingdom from where the city was, Uh, Joseph knew that that would be a great place for his family to be so they could be separate but be taken care of. They would still be within Joseph's purview. So Joseph had to trust in God as his family was going to go before Pharaoh. And we need to understand that in our lives as well, uh, that just like Joseph, we have to trust God for things. When we go and ask for things before, you know, people of authority, whether it be people at work who are, you know, bosses or in in power structures, um, or, you know, even in the government, even out in in civics as we might go to city hall to get a permit or something like that. You know, we have to trust. We have to wait on the Lord. And Joseph had to trust in God. Even though Pharaoh had great trust in him, Uh, Joseph was still at the mercy of Pharaoh. And remember all the way back to the two men that Pharaoh had cast in prison when Joseph was in prison. It was because they had displeased the Pharaoh and that he had, in a a fit of rage, had cast them into the prison. So certainly Joseph knew that was a possibility. And so it says in uh, verse 2 of chapter 47 that he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. You know, we aren't told which five. We just know that Joseph looked at his family and said, these uh, will probably be the five who would be, make, make the best appearance, so to speak, before Pharaoh. And so as he got his brothers together after he had coached them up a little bit, uh, he took them in and then Pharaoh uh, asked them the question exactly as Joseph had said in verse three. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. 
And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land. So they're asking permission from Pharaoh. Can we come and dwell in the land? This is your land, not ours. And is it okay if we come and hang out here? We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, here's the point where God intervenes again. Verse 5, then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So what a tremendous answer to prayer. So once again, God has working, has been working in the heart of Pharaoh. And let me remind you that God is working in the heart of this pagan king. This pagan king who all of the pharaohs believed that they were created and made and fashioned for, for rulership in the image of Ra, the sun god. This was a man who was a worshiper of pagan idols and pagan gods. Yet God had put it in his heart. God was using him for his purposes and for his glory. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Proverbs that says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he, the Lord, turns it whichever way he, the Lord, wishes. So the Lord is using this unholy, unjust, pagan king for his own purposes. Now consider this, Pharaoh is being used by God to allow the people of Israel to come and to dwell in the fattest, richest, most lush portion of the land in all of the land of Egypt. And he's just saying, Joseph, hey man, whatever you want, you have whatever your family needs, what's mine is yours. So what a blessing that God is doing this. And listen, at the higher level, if we can zoom out a bit, this is God divinely orchestrating what's going to happen for the next 400 years in the life of the nation of Israel. And long after Joseph's gone, long after this Pharaoh has gone and other Pharaohs have come, long after Israel himself, Jacob, has passed on, God is orchestrating something for the people of Israel. So he is controlling, if you will, the heart of the king for his divine purposes. And then after the interaction between Pharaoh and the brothers, now Joseph brings in his father, Jacob, and he set him before Pharaoh, and, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, it says. Now the thing that's interesting to note there is um, he has just come in before the great king, before Pharaoh. And the first thing he does, the first thing Jacob does, is he blesses Pharaoh. What a wonderful thing. Now, all the way back at the beginning, in one of the appearances that Jacob um, had, or rather one of the appearances of the Lord to Jacob at Bethel, remember the Lord had said to him, I'm going to make you a blessing. I want you to be a blessing. No matter where you go, be a blessing. And here in this moment, as Israel himself has an opportunity to appear before the king, it reminds me of the situation with the Apostle Paul. 
Remember, in Acts chapter 9, even as Paul was being saved, and he uh, went into the house of Ananias, or rather Ananias came into his house to remove the scales from his eyes to heal him. Remember, the word that the Lord gave to Ananias to give to Paul was, um, I've predestined you to stand before kings and magistrates and to give testimony for my name. Now, Jacob himself didn't have that specific promise, but here he is before Pharaoh. And we need to be reminded this morning that when we suddenly find ourselves, as we may often find ourselves, standing before someone of influence, of authority, whether it be someone as powerful as the president of the United States or even the governor of the state or maybe just a local or a town official, or really anyone with any kind of influence, we need to understand that God is giving us an opportunity in that moment to give testimony to him, to bring glory to him, to point people toward him. And so Joseph, excuse me, Jacob, as he is now before Pharaoh, the first thing out of Jacob's mouth is to bless Pharaoh. Pharaoh says to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to the Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my pilgrimage of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. In other words, his forefathers before him had lived to be much, much older than he was at that point in time. But I want to sort of draw your attention this morning and pause here for a moment on Jacob's answer to Pharaoh. Now, when he says few and evil have been the days and the years of my life, the word evil here doesn't imply wickedness, but rather misery and distress. And certainly as we look at Jacob's life, we know that after, in the beginning of his life, rather, of course, with his uh, uh, uncle Laban, when he went to serve him for his daughter, uh, Rachel, and then got tricked and, and duped. And then, of course, he got Leah first and then Rachel and uh, went through that whole process of serving his uncle for 20 years. We know as we think back on that time of study that Jacob actually sort of was receiving a bit of his own medicine because he had been a deceiver and a, a, a trickster and a manipulator, a schemer. And the Lord sort of turned it upon him. But then as we looked at Jacob's life, God was working through his life over time to break him of that habit of self-reliance and self-sufficiency, which is something, by the way, you know this, that the world tells you is a desirable characteristic. Modern psychology tells us that self-reliance And self-actualization, to quote Abraham Maslow, one of the fathers of modern psychology, that's the goal. That's where we're headed. That's where we want to be. And from the point of view of an unbeliever, that's true. Where that ultimately leads is that man becomes his own God. But where God wants to take us, and certainly all Christians, all believers, all people who have trusted in Christ, God wants to take us to a place of dependency upon him, to a place of trust. In fact, he wants to take us away from self-reliance because self-reliance is a fruit of the flesh, but he wants to take us to the land of the fruit of the spirit. So Jacob here answering Pharaoh, talking to him about the days of the years of his pilgrimage. 
Now, the first thing I I want you to understand is that Jacob is describing his life as a pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is not a word that's in our everyday vocabulary, is it? When's the last time you used the word pilgrimage in conversation, right? Never. But it's a good term. It's a biblical term. What does it mean? What is it talking about? Well, pilgrimage is talking about the course of our life. Pilgrimage implies that we understand that we are here for a period of time. We don't know how long that period of time is. But pilgrimage also communicates the idea that I'm not here for myself. And the ultimate goal of my life is to honor and to glorify God. So a pilgrimage implies a stewardship. And the stewardship that God has given us is our lives and time. And so as Jacob speaks to Pharaoh, he he speaks of the years of my pilgrimage. So everybody has some metaphor, some descriptor for life. Some of us may refer to it as a battle. Some may refer to it as a race. Sometimes we think it's just a trap or a puzzle. But Jacob's metaphor and the biblical metaphor is that of a pilgrimage. You see, the patriarchs were pilgrims and strangers on the earth, and we're going to look at some scriptures about that, but so are all of God's people. We agree with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this world is not our home. That's what pilgrimage is communicating to us. Our time here is brief and temporary, and we are eagerly looking for our permanent home in the city of God in heaven. Now, let me direct your attention this morning. Feel free to turn there with me if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13, says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, a way of looking at and thinking about and understanding the due course of our life. We are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, meaning this world, this earth is not our home. Hebrews eleven fifteen. and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Pilgrimage, the way that we need to think about our lives. In 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against your soul. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. In other words, we're just passing through. That's another thing that pilgrimage communicates to us. We are just passing through. We are not to sink down roots here in this earth, on this earth, in this life. Philippians 3.20, Paul said it this way, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not citizens of wherever we live, the state of New Hampshire, the country of the United States, a citizen of the earth. We are citizens of heaven. 
We are in the midst of a pilgrimage, and we are just passing through. Psalm 119, verse 54, says something very similar. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. In other words, the word of God has been our song during the days of our life, of our pilgrimage. James captured in his epistle this idea where he says in James chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what, what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Pilgrimage, a vapor. In the light of eternity, think about the time that God has given us. Psalm 90, a psalm that Moses wrote, he says, our lives may be 70 or if due to strength, 80 years, but let us learn to present to God a heart of wisdom. Pilgrimage, we are only here for a period of time. Or another place I'd like for you to turn, and let's just consider this for a moment, is Matthew chapter 6. And then we'll move on from this idea of pilgrimage. But as I, I read this and I was thinking and praying through this, I thought, man, what an opportunity for us to sort of recalibrate on what is the meaning of life for us as believers, it's to honor God, it's to worship God, it's to understand that what we have here and now, whether it be material or financial or physical blessings, that's all in a sense nothing because when we stand before God, when we read about the passages that talk about that, 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture of the church, um, Revelation chapter 1, as you, you begin to see what heaven's going to be like, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, what's it going to be like to be in heaven before God? You understand very quickly, there is no mention of family. There's no mention of all the, all the accomplishments. There's no mention of how well you did in saving money in your 401k. There's no mention of the successes of this life. There is only worship before the throne of God. So what are we living for? What we are, are we investing in? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Right there, most of us are undone, right? Because we spend most of our, the days of our pilgrimage worrying about our life and the affairs of life. But let's continue. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will, be, what you will put on. It is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Now let me correct a misconception about that verse. So sometimes we think of a cubit as like, you know, a little bit. You know, can I, can I lay upside down on the inversion table and grow like half an inch? Can I lay on the rack and get stretched and grow a little bit? 
Now, a cubit was a measure of the span from the tip of the elbow to the tip of the middle finger, typically regarded to be about 18 inches. So it's actually a statement of impossibility. Can any of you add a cubit, meaning 18 inches to your stature? Of course you can't. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, this is Jesus. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, meaning the lilies of the field. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. Don't say, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, he's saying, seek the Lord. And if we focus on seeking the Lord, God will take care of the incidentals. God will take care of the stuff that we worry about. Verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Pilgrimage. What is your attitude as you walk through the pilgrimage that God has given you? Are you walking through the pilgrimage of your life with faith, understanding that God is in control, understanding that God will take care of things? God takes care of the things that concern us, and we don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned. We don't have to strive. We don't want to build up heavenly treasure. He says, store up, uh, excuse me, uh, earthly treasure. We want to store up a heavenly treasure, and we do that by focusing on the Lord. We worship Him. We cast our cares upon Him. On a day-to-day basis, we get up, and our anxieties come, and they, they happen, right? They come because of health. They come because of life pressures. They, they come because of difficult situations that arise in our lives because of relationship issues that just seem to pop up out of nowhere on a constant basis. Listen, God will take care of it if we trust him, if we leave it in his hands. And so Jacob blesses Pharaoh and he answers Pharaoh saying, the days of my pilgrimage. And so Joseph and Jacob now there before the Pharaoh as they speak to the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh takes care of it. God takes care of it through Pharaoh would be a better way of saying it. Verse 11, back in Genesis 47, and Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. How amazing that God did this. In the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses as Pharaoh had commanded, And by the very fact that Joseph was able to take his family and and put them out in the land of Ramesses says that there was no one else dwelling in the land. So it's as if God had this little piece of uh, land out in the Fertile Crescent in the the northwest part of Egypt uh, beside the River Nile, the most lush, rich, 
amazing place. And God said, I got a place for you guys. You're going to love it. So Joseph, verse 12, provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. So what did Joseph's family do? Remember going back to all of the shenanigans in the back and forth that they came down to buy bread and then they went home and all of that. And then Joseph said, go get the whole family. Pharaoh sent a caravan. Go get everybody and bring them down. So he provided extreme limo service to go back to Canaan and bring the whole family down. And then he gets them there and they still don't have any food, even though they've come to the place that has food. So what happens is Joseph, rather Pharaoh, wait a minute, God provided for them and he gave them everything that they needed. It's it's an embodiment of what we just read in Matthew chapter 6. So now we come to verse 13 and the the tide shifts a little bit. Joseph has to go back to work because remember, we're at a point in time where there's still several years left in the famine. We were in year two of the famine. Five years were left and the brothers and the families came down. Joseph's gotten them situated. Now he's back to work. In verse 13, now there was no bread in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So now we see Joseph being a wise and a discerning steward. And given that he served his master, Pharaoh, whom clearly God had put him there. Now remember, remember how Joseph described himself to his brothers when he revealed himself last week? He said, God has made me a father to Pharaoh. So Joseph was acting in the Pharaoh's best interest. And so as people were coming and they needed to buy the grain, he's just taking in all this money. Now go back to the beginning. When God gave this dream to Pharaoh, and he had given them the two dreams, remember? And and he was talking about the the cows and and the grain and all of that and how there were going to be these years of famine. And as Joseph revealed that to him and interpreted the dream, then, then God raised Joseph up and put him in that place. And the Pharaoh said, I'm giving you everything. Remember, he gave him his signet ring and, you know, all sorts of authority. So now Joseph is acting on behalf of the Pharaoh. And a part of this whole plan, no doubt, from God's point of view, is what's happening in this moment. As Joseph is now gathering up all the money of the land, all of it, And think about the way that God is blessing Pharaoh because of Joseph's presence. God didn't just put Joseph in a place so that Pharaoh would provide for him and his family, but God put Joseph in a place so that he would bless Pharaoh. So blessing would come to this pagan nation through the hand of a godly man. So Joseph gathered up all this money and he brought it into Pharaoh's house in verse 15. So when the money failed... In all the land of Egypt, in other words, they had spent everything they had, and there was still several years to go. They had nothing left with which to buy grain as they are walking through these years of famine. They came to Joseph and said, give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. We've spent everything, all of our life savings. We have nothing. Then Joseph said, okay, what do you have? Give me your livestock. 
and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. And thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. So it was like, all the money's gone. Well, what do you have? Now they're giving them all of the animals. And they needed the animals, right? The animals were their livelihood, their source of living. And so now they're giving everything away to Joseph. When that year had ended, verse 18, they came to him the next year and they said, all right, we're not going to hide anything from you. All of our money's gone. You have all of our livestock. There's nothing left except us, our bodies, and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread, that we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh? In other words, if we're going to survive, uh, we're it. You're looking at it. So we'll be your slaves. We'll be Pharaoh's slaves. And you can take all of our houses and property, but just don't let us die. That's how bad it had become. And we in our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So now we're marching through those years. And we must be coming at this point toward the end of the time when the famine is going to end. Because as we read on in verse 20, then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. So now think about it. Pharaoh owns everything. He has all the money, all the herds, all the livestock. And now he has all the land and he also owns the people. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of, the Egypt, to the, of Egypt to the other. So he got them all together in one place and just said, look, it'll be easier to manage everybody if you're not all spread out. Only the land of the priests, that's the pagan priest, that he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, something that Joseph couldn't touch. It was a system Pharaoh already had in place. And they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Now, verse 30, 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. So now he's beginning to look toward recovery to the time when the famine is going to end. And so think about the wisdom of Joseph in the beginning of this famine, that not only did he store up all the grain and whatnot, but he stored up plenty of seed because he thought ahead. He, he Talk about long range planning, right? He said, you know, this famine's going to be severe. God's already warned us of it. So we need to plan not only for a way to get through the famine, but coming out the backside, we need to have seed to, to when the famine is going to end, we can plant that seed and begin to restart that process of the land, being able to produce crops. So Joseph is giving them seed and he says, hey, you shall sow the, the land and it shall come to pass in the harvest, verse 24, that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. 20%. We're like, wow, that's heavy. Think about our tax structure here today in the United States. 20% is pretty good compared to what most of us have to pay. So four-fifths shall be your own, one-fifth for Pharaoh as seed for the field and for your food, for, those, uh, for your households and for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. 
Now, Joseph has been such a wise administrator, and, and from this point backward, we've been looking at it going, wow, what favor God has given Joseph in the sight of Pharaoh and the blessing that God has brought to Pharaoh through Joseph. But now we see that God is blessing the people because of Joseph. And the people are now viewing Joseph as this amazing administrator. You've saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So it's bringing in a sense of joy to them to say, look, hey, we're alive. We're being taken care of. Yes, you're selling stuff to us, but we see an end now. We see a light at the end of the tunnel. And so we begin to see that it's not just that Joseph was being a good steward, but that God had gifted him with the gift of leadership. And the things that Joseph is is doing, I mean, Pharaoh is like, man, I don't have to do anything. Joseph has got it covered. And Joseph, verse 26, made it a law over the land. So he even had that power. To this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests, which did not become Pharaoh's. So God doing this amazing work, providing not only for Jacob's family, excuse me, and Joseph's family, but also providing for all of the land of Egypt. God, through one man, bringing an incredible blessing, taking care of the people. And a little reminder for us all this morning, because we often wonder, don't we, about the significance of our lives? God can use one person, just one, who's available to him, who's willing to be used by God. If we are willing, God is willing. If we are willing to give our lives to him and say, Lord, here am I, I'm your servant, use me. Sometimes we think about, well, that's a fearful thing because God's going to send me to some remote place that I don't want to go. Could be, but I think generally speaking, that's not what happens. God will take a person and raise them up where they are and use them for his glory. And he did this in the life of Joseph. Verse 27, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen and they had possessions there and they grew and they multiplied exceedingly. So now we're beginning to see finally the growth of the nation of Israel. We're beginning to see the the start of the promises that God had uh, promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob about uh, the people that would come through Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven or of the sand of the sea. Verse 28, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So after he got there, he lived 17 more years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Remember, when he appeared before Pharaoh, he was 130. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, so he became aware that he was getting weak and the time of the end was near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now if I have found favor in your sight... What an amazing thing for a father to say to a son. Yet certainly he knew the position that God had placed his son in over the land of Egypt. Now, if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. You know, he didn't want to stay there. He didn't want to to be there after his death. So now he's sort of giving his last will and testament to his son. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Let let me uh, lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt 
and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said, Father. And then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. Now, something that we don't often like to think about is the idea of a funeral. And I've seen people over the years who, you know, just walking through that with them, many have, you know, had some things already planned out or maybe some things written down or they've communicated the things to people on their deathbed. And, you know, uh, just speaking specifically of believing funerals, because unbelieving funerals, I've seen some crazy things. But thinking that you're about the fact that your last public testimony that you and I will ever give is what happens, what takes place at our funeral. Listen, we're not here for the praise of men, right? We're here for the praise of God. But what people say about us, uh, what kind of impression we've left with our pilgrimage will be important. And so we need to understand that concept as we looked at earlier of our life being a vapor. You know, and I, I don't know I haven't written any of this down, but, you know, I don't know what you hope would be said about you in your eulogy as uh, someone speaks over you. But I certainly hope that it would in some way amount to people giving glory to God because of things he did in me and things he did through me. And that's that's something that I think that we should all think about and all be aware of. You see, that affects how we live. And the amazing thing, of course, is that when God looks at us and we see this in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, as he looks back on people's lives and we go through that list of people that are listed there and we think about it and we think, man, they had some pretty big mess ups, some pretty serious issues in their lives. David, Rahab the harlot, and we could go on and on. But yet as God memorialized them there in Hebrews chapter 11, it was like, God saw their faith. He saw their faith. They were a people who believed God. They trusted God and God reckoned it to them as righteousness. That's what we want our lives to be like when it comes before others. When we are noticed before men, we want glory to be given to God, not go, oh man, what an awesome person. What an amazing philanthropist. Man, they were so good at this, that, and the other thing. I hope that we have the idea, the goal, the desire that God would use our lives to bless others. And that when, if people were to be given an open mic and parade up front, that what they would say would be something that would give glory and honor to God because of how we lived our lives. So in chapter 48, came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father's sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on his bed. So he's literally very, very close to dying. And Jacob said to Joseph, listen to what Jacob says, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz, which was Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and God blessed me. So here's what he's saying to his son as sort of his parting words. Listen, God appeared to me. God blessed me. God spoke to me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. In other words, 
God, we're here in Egypt right now. We're here in the land of Goshen, but this is not where we're going to be forever. I have the promise of God. God's going to move us back. So that's the promise. I'm passing it along to you. Now, remember, there were two times that God spoke to Jacob in the land of Bethel. The first time was when he was going down uh, to Laban's house where he was finding his wife. And then the second time is when he was coming out, when he was going out to meet his brother um, Esau. The first one for your benefit, just to go back and review, is found in Genesis 28 verses 10 through 19. But as we go back and review that, when God spoke to him in Genesis 28, God said, I am the Lord, the God of uh, Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then God said, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So that was in Genesis 28. So now Jacob is repeating this to his son, Joseph, saying, look, man, God spoke to me. And this is what he said. And then later in Genesis 35, when Jacob had come back to Bethel, and he had built an altar there, and he was worshiping the Lord, in Genesis 35:10, remember this is where God changed his name. Your name's Jacob, but you shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him Israel. Excuse me, I just lost my place. There we go. Uh, so he called him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from your body. So Jacob knew these things. He believed in the promises of God. So in chapter 48, verse 5, And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, these are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. So now what's happening is Jacob is looking at the situation. And remember, uh, Reuben and Simeon had done some pretty horrible things early on. Reuben had slept with one of his father's concubines and sort of made a, a coup attempt at taking the power from his father. And Simeon was the ringleader for going out and avenging their sister's uh, rape and the ill treatment of her. And then he had taken the brothers and they had just gone and massacred a whole ton of people. So these two things marred uh, these first two brothers. And so now God is raising up, Jacob is raising up, uh, Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they are going to end up taking the place of those two older sons in terms of the family's pecking order and the family's blessing. We'll see that next week in, in the next chapter. So Joseph, Joseph said to his father, these are my, my two sons because his father couldn't see very well. And these are the ones whom God has given me in this place. And so Jacob said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see them. Then Joseph brought them near and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God also has shown me your offspring. So 
he's again attributing to the fact that God is blessing him. Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. So these boys were probably certainly teenagers at this point. And Joseph took them, both Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left toward Israel's right and brought them near. So Joseph is doing what is traditional. He's bringing the boys, but he's orienting them before his father that the right hand would be on the older and the left hand would be on the younger for the blessing, of course, always passed to the older. And Israel stretched out his uh, right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh. So now he's brought them before him. And instead of doing this, he's doing this. He's laying his hands crossways on the boy's heads. And he blessed Joseph and said, A God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life to this day, the angel has redeemed me from all evil. So he again, he's pointing it all back to God. He's now realizing here in this moment, it is the Lord who has done all of these things. And notice what he said there in verse 15. Something for us to consider. I would, I would suggest you underline or highlight this. The God who has fed me all my life long to this day. When you stop to give thanks at your meals, assuming you do, I hope you do, do you thank God for the very fact that what's before you, God has given to you? Yes, I know you might have worked. Yes, I know your paycheck might have bought that food. But do you understand that it is God who has allowed it to be so. God who has fed me all of my life to this very day. We should acknowledge God and what he has done. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. And Joseph said to his father, no, no, father, you got it backwards. Uh, This is the firstborn over here. You need to put your right hand on his head. And listen, this is the only time in verse 18 of chapter 48, the only time, the only time that we have recorded in Joseph's life where he was displeased with his father or with anyone else. Think about that. Now, if somebody wrote a little epitaph of my life, you know, anyone who's been around me, they could count on many, many, you know, numbers, how many times I've been displeased or dissatisfied with something. And probably true of all of us. But this is the only recorded instance we have in all of Joseph's life where he was displeased with his father or with anyone else. What a testimony. What a testimony for Joseph and what an indictment on us. But again, referring back to Hebrews chapter 11, God in his grace and his mercy and because of the blood of Christ, he overlooks those things. He sees those things that are of faith and he doesn't see our failures. He sees past those things to the blood of Christ. Verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, son, I know. I know what I'm doing. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Now, no doubt, Jacob is remembering back to his 
time with his father Isaac and his brother Esau. Now remember at the very beginning of the pregnancy of Rebekah, God had promised there's two nations in your womb, but uh, the older shall serve the younger. So there was the prophecy given even back then by the Lord to the mother. And then the day came when uh, Jacob and his mother had schemed to take the blessing of Esau from the father and from Esau, even though God had already promised that it was going to be. And the scheming and the conniving, remember that story and how it had brought such a difficult time on the family that Jacob had to flee for his life and go back to his family's land all the way back to Laban, of course, to find a wife. I got to believe that this was going through his mind as he is here, laying his hands, crossing them over. And he's saying in this moment that, if you will, the Holy Spirit, that God is leading him to do this, to also bless the younger. Because remember, Jacob was the younger. And God is working in this moment. And he indeed has reversed the blessing and again, giving the blessing to the younger. And so he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will bless saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So God had a plan. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. He is passing along to his son and to their families, the things that God had told him and promised him at Bethel. Twice God spoke to him and promised these things to him. And now with all confidence, as he finds himself on his deathbed, he's coming to his last breath, his last words and testament. And he's saying, listen, God is going to fulfill his word. God will bring you back and he will fulfill his promise. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. As we come to an end this morning and we close out, remember pilgrimage. How are we living our lives before God? What is God doing in us? What does he want to do through us? And if we would but yield our lives to him, and there's an old saying, and I believe it's very true, that God is not looking so much for ability, but he's looking for availability. And if we will be available to him, what he is willing to do through one man, through one woman yielded to him is amazing. It will blow our minds. And so often we think so low of ourselves. And yes, in our flesh, maybe we're not capable of anything. Paul said in Romans chapter seven, I find that in my flesh that nothing good dwells. That's okay. That's a given. That's true. But God wants to take a person of flesh, fill them with his spirit and use them for his glory. This is God's method. And he will do it if we are willing. Listen, our pilgrimage is to be lived before the Lord. Our lives are temporary. Let's give our lives to God as a drink offering, as a sacrifice. And let him use us. God has used all these people we've been reading about in these stories here in the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Joseph. Remember Judah a couple of weeks ago as we talked about how God had done this renovation in his life. God wants to use us for his glory. Question is, will we bow to him? Will we acquiesce? Will we yield our lives to him and allow him to use us? And I hope the answer is yes. So the question is, as we close today, will you say yes to the Lord? Will you say yes to him? 
Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for ministering to us. God, bless us. Bless us as you blessed these people we've been reading about. And Lord, may we indeed, even right now, just stop and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm willing to yield my life to you. Yes, Lord, I understand my life is a pilgrimage. It is not my own. I've been bought with a price. My life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. God, use me. May you use me like a Joseph, like a Jacob, like a David, like a Nehemiah, like a Daniel. Lord, would you use me? An Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. Lord, use me. The Apostle John. Lydia, who opened up her home and a a church blossomed in her house. Lord, would you use us for your glory? Would you use us for the good of your kingdom? Lord, we say, along with so many people we've read about in the, in the, the word of God, Lord, here am I, send me. Lord, speak for your servant is listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Let's uh, stand up and sing.